The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, which is the first secret told in this genealogy. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, secret number two. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, number three. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And then verse six. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we look at what it means for you to come through a line like this, through a family like this, it challenges us to think about what it means for all of our families in one way, shape, or form to be flawed deeply. For all of us to cry out in our own genealogies for deliverance. And this morning, Lord Jesus, would you teach us, would you teach us everything that you would have us know about how justice comes through lines like this? We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, to see a wrong and correct it is maybe the greatest thing we can do, to see a wrong and correct it. But we live in a world right now, especially without the slightest idea of what it means or at least the slightest agreement, to be right, wrong, guilty, or innocent. How to right wrongs, we don't know. We, we desperately want justice. We want the bad to receive their due. We want the good to be delivered. We want lies to be seen for what they are, and guilt to be punished. The innocent, we want to be redeemed. But the lack of our ability to see it and agree on it and bring it into existence makes us ill. We are sick, especially now. The next stop in this genealogy is kind of poking at this issue, guilt and innocence. Matthew doesn't just go out and say Bathsheba. He doesn't just go out and say David, just David is the one in the line. It says that David took Uriah's wife. It's right there in the line of Christ. Uriah has nothing to do with the coming Jesus in any other way except that he's the one whose head the anvil falls on. <laughs> he's the one who's the target of the con man. He's the fall guy, Uriah. That's his part. Here we have a clear crime. If you read it, this is a clear crime here. A definite injustice. It's right here in the introduction to the coming of Christ. It's part of that Advent calendar that we think about. Injustice. It is a part of the world in which we live, into which Jesus comes. You know, those of you who have charm bracelets is one of the charms. You know, you wouldn't naturally put that on. Oh, that one's for Uriah's wife, right? You wouldn't ordinarily decorate yourself with a truth like this, but God does. Part of the story is that Christ comes through the line of Solomon, whose mother is exploited by his father. So it's a hard time to talk about guilt and innocence in our world. 
I'll let you guess why, right? We're in the middle of an impeachment process in our own country, a heartbreaking, a soul-shaking journey. Faith and institutions erode. There's a culture of suspicion often among one another. We question each other's loyalties. The fabric of the nation almost feels in some ways like it's untethering. We find we can't even agree on the vocabulary that we need to use in order to address what's right and what's wrong. Families and friends, some families and friends suffer a permanent rupture in the middle of this. And we can't help but argue in circles because every discussion is hopelessly tangled up in our commitments, our affiliations, our tribal connections. Guilt and innocence, even just talking about what's guilt and what's innocence becomes, becomes fighting words. This is the world in which we live right now. But maybe the place to start is to admit that this isn't the first time we've been in a world like this. A world like this has been described in many places in the Scriptures, including where it seemed like the very line of Christ was utterly ruptured in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. This is what covers the story of David and Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet, the whole thing. David's at home and his army is encamped against the Ammonites who were rivals, chief rivals in the land, okay? They were not good friends. They were in it at battle, at war. They were an arch rival. So David has seen enough success in his life that he decides he doesn't really need to go out with the army. He doesn't need to battle with the tabernacle of God and Israel's mighty men. Instead, he can kind of stroll around the palace, take in the sights. David in his uh, palace is elevated uh, excavation suggests that it was at least six stories above the typical dwelling in Israel. In the area, in the old area of the city, you had a, a platform that many believed was kind of the platform leading to David's dwelling, the palace dwelling. So at least six stories high. And while he's up there, he has the opportunity to spy on this woman named Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife. David takes a liking to her, and instead of denying his lust, he asks about her, and once he hears that she's the wife of one of his well-known military men, he, well, he decides to send for her anyway. He sends for her. And when the king sends for you, he means to get what he asks for, right? This isn't just an ordinary person asking. So the Bible tells us that Bathsheba is doing some ceremonial washing. You can read it there in 2 uh, Samuel 11. She's, doing, she's kind of getting ready to worship. She's preparing herself to worship like a good Israelite. She's aiming at holiness, and she's taken by a king who's aiming at defiling her. So she shows up. David makes her his conquest. This is in the Bible. <laughs> She returns to her home, and she sends word that she's pregnant. Now, David's not particularly good at crime, all right? So he tries to hide his act by recalling Bathsheba's husband from the front. And he says, oh, Uriah, why don't you go and spend time with your wife, hoping that maybe something will happen, and then there's a plausible reason why she's pregnant, right? 
Well, it doesn't work because he's too loyal to his friends in the army. If you've ever known a military man before, being pulled out of the front of heavy fighting to go spend time with your wife would seem nonsensical, and it should have to David. Uriah is a good man, a good soldier. He won't go. So David's now stuck, and he, he realizes he's kind of pot committed, so to speak. You know, he's got a bunch of his chips in there, and so he throws them all in, and he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll send him back out to the front, and I'll make sure that all the rest pull back, and he dies. Uriah dies. Now, we've grown used to this story, so maybe it should take a minute to sink in. Of course, this is homicide, but it's also treason. When David receives word of Uriah's death, he spins a cover-up to his top general. I'm not making all this up, okay? This is right here in the line of Jesus. Blame God. This is the story, okay? His top general, he tells him, don't worry. This is just something that happens in warfare. People die. He builds a narrative. He builds a story that he knows is untrue in order to avoid accountability. It's a gross abuse of his power as a king. And this is a really grim look for the line of Jesus, but it's there. So it's really remarkable in my mind that uh, the historians and patriarchs of Jesus' day didn't just scuttle this. I mean, like, think about it. Think of who David is. Couldn't somebody have said, you know, he had one bad day, okay? We have to protect our leader. He's important. People look to him. So let's, you know, people have honest mistakes. David, he founded a kingdom. He reinstituted the worship of God, the proper worship of God. He reinstituted the proper worship of God. Yes, he's the one who, who also slayed uh, uh, Goliath by faith when nobody else would stand up. This is David, right? So of course, let's rewrite the story. Can't you, don't you think that in the intervening, you know, hundreds of years before this was accounted, and then thousands of years since we've received it, at some point, somebody in PR would have said, you know, I like the story of David, except for the murder and adultery part, okay? Let's remove that part from the story, because let's think about David. He's, he's not a perfect man, but he's a great king. He's good for the economy, good for the military, right? He's good for religion. So the Bible doesn't do this. The scriptures show us a king who is deeply flawed. And it's precisely that flaw that Matthew decides to illustrate, leading to the Christ. Now, eventually, God sends Nathan the prophet. As the story goes, and we're in now 2 Samuel 12, the beginning of 2 Samuel 12, God sends Nathan the prophet to visit David. And notice, this is months later. God allows David to sit think that he's gotten away with it. And here's what happened. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. In that day and age, right, you would have a the lamb often, uh, the family might have a, like a, a sheep as a pet, okay? in your house and, and your kids would get used to it and they'd call it Bill, you know, Bill the lamb. And of course, you know, when it was time to sacrifice that lamb or another lamb, things would get a little dicey. But, you know, you'd name the lamb something, right? Now there came a traveler, so, so he talks about the lamb again. It says, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. 
and was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Prepared it means he slaughtered it, right? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. I like to think about David who knows he's so full of of wrong at this point. It had to feel good to him to really take it out on somebody at this moment, you know? He's like, I know I'm messed up, but now I can kind of make it all right by really taking it to this guy that stole that lamb. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to, uh, to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You are the one in the line of Christ. So one thing that this episode gives us, one thing that this part in in David's story, and part of the reason why it needs to be in the genealogy for us, is that it also helps us to see how we ought to live when we're caught red-handed. When we're caught. He doesn't hide away. He doesn't give up. He doesn't obfuscate. We know the innocent go to God, but here we see that the guilty go to God too. See David, Psalm 51 and Psalm 31 are traditionally understood as happening during the time of David's waiting for God to judge, and then after Nathan speaks to him, right? So I want you to hear these two. From Psalm 51, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Do you notice that? Just like, you wouldn't des- delight in these outward signs. No, that's not what you want. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And then in Psalm 31, be gracious to me, O God. Right, traditionally understood as happening after the sin of Bathsheba and before the confrontation of Nathan. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. During a blind study of uh, 153 Canadian research subjects, those in the study were asked to think of a particular memory that provoked a sense of guilt and to dwell on it. And then you had a control group, and then you had a group that only thought positive thoughts, which that was probably the better group to be a part of, right? But the group that had to dwell on the negative, guilty thought, they found, and there were five different studies, all found the same thing different groups of people. Those who thought the guilty thoughts, those who dwelled on their guilt, assessed their body weight more severely than those who did not. They felt less energy. They believed that they were less able to do things. Study after study in this area of psychology that's called embodied cognition. It confirmed this reality that feelings of guilt and shame 
literally do weigh on people, just as David said. Guilt is like, it's like walking around in clothes that are too small, right? You know, you may weigh the same, but you know every pound. Guilt is exhausting. Guilt is heavy. David's guilt hangs there. And so for us in trying to think about what do we do with the guilty? How do we assess that? How do we assess the guilt here in us? How do we assess the guilt in others? How do we deal with this? I read recently where there was a uh, a hipster who was frustrated, really, he self-identified as a hipster, who was frustrated and upset about this fact. He had, he had read this article, and the article had said that uh, all hipsters dress alike, okay? And he wasn't mad about the article. He was mad about the fact that his picture was next to the article, picture of him wearing what he wears, right? So he goes to the author, this is a true story, he goes to the author and confronts him, saying, how is it how did you use my photo without permission to put me on here to make fun of how I dress and who I am, calling me a hipster? And he realized that it wasn't him. It wasn't him. But he dressed so much like the typical hipster that when the typical hipster was photographed, he thought it was him, right? He confronts the article. We love irony like that. And if anything's true of us, like it is of him, we don't always know how other people see us. We don't always know how other people see us. We don't know how we look to the rest of the world. We think we get away with things that we don't. With Jesus at the end of this long genealogy, we're in trouble. There's an incarnation at the end. Here's the story of all these people. Some very faithful, some very faithless. At the end of this genealogy, which we'll talk about on Tuesday, there's Jesus. And what we learn is that no matter what all of these people did, no matter what their stories were, no matter what their great infringements, their guilt and their innocence, none of it either disqualified them or approved them to, to succeed. They needed at the end to have a Christ. There had to be a Christ punctuating this story of human beings. Jesus is here at the end. You are the man. I am the man. We are the ones willing to do whatever in order to get what we want most. We are supposed to see ourselves in the genealogy. We have wandering eyes and coveting hearts. Our loyalty is sketchy at best. This is us. We need the genealogy to end with Christ. If there's ever going to be an answer to injustice. We have to hear Nathan's words come to us, right? If we ever get through an advent without recognizing that part of the reason why Jesus comes is not just to fill our lives with presence, but is also to say, this world is not right. Think about how drastic of a move it is for Jesus to become the Christ, for the second person of the Trinity to put on flesh. Think about the abrupt change that is to exist in Trinitarian form for an eternity in perfect fellowship and then to inhabit the weakness of human beings. There had to be something very wrong. For Jesus to come to earth, that's part of the story. Part of it is a story of judgment. Jesus has to come and say, this is not right. This is not okay. 
And we have to realize that Jesus comes in part because we are the ones who have helped to make the world what it is. And so we have to greet that with humility. And out of that humility, a new world begins to spring. Advent is this yearly reminder that Jesus came into the world so that this church can fight against evil, so that his church can push back against what's wrong. Jesus comes because the world is not what it's supposed to be. Now, there's something comforting in that. We can say it. We don't have to pretend, you know. If you've already been at a holiday kind of gathering where everybody knows that something's very wrong in the room, but nobody talks about it, you know how those are? You know, you're like, let's just get through this. Let's just get through this. Let's do the holiday thing. Not you. I see some of you families here, not your family, but other families could be like this, right? Where there's this thing you just don't talk about. You just kind of get past it, right? But in this sense, we're okay. It's okay for us to say this thing isn't right and that Jesus came to make it right. So there's something good about that. On the other hand, if we don't have a sense that something's wrong with this world, we need to take a listen for real to what God is saying to us. If we're okay with the way things are, that's a problem. Jesus came into the world to leave a church fights evil. Somehow, and here's my conviction as a pastor, born of experience, that even though we've entered into a world that is sick, hurting, we've somehow found a way, at times, to make things worse, to greet that pain with more pain. That's an awful thing to say, but let me explain it, okay? Current events are making us ill. We naturally look for someone to blame. At heart, it's not really a political leader or a political party or the descent of TV and media into a weird public moral ethic. It's not the cultural trends. It's not even things like the pornography that's available on every portable device and in your kids' schools and wherever else. The real problem, or the problem that we most need to attend to, is that there is this Wispy, gentle, non-confrontational, unbothered church that meets every week to think about other people's sins. <laughs> and if what we believe is true about Advent is really true, we have to own our role, both as sinner and sinned against. What have we done? I think we can put it this way. We have learned not to fight against the powers and principalities of this present darkness, as the scriptures tell us, to fight evil. We've learned how to fight flesh and blood. We push them away. We cancel them. But to fight evil is to welcome sinners with both truth and hospitality at the same time. The church is intended to have this voice like a prophet, like a Nathan, not like a partisan, like a prophet. Nathan speaks to the king with authority. He speaks against his own tribe, right? He goes up to David. You got to believe he's ready to be cast out, right? But in gentleness, he goes and he actually, he goes to David with a story that will engage him. He goes and he tells the truth. What do we do? Well, the record is, and I have to be honest with this, and I promise there's good news in the sermon, but I have to be honest about this. 
The church doesn't have a great record on telling the truth and telling the truth to power. We often don't self-report abuse. We often don't speak about evil in our own ranks. We often pass pastors and leaders off to victimize churches because we don't want to deal with their struggles. We've done some real hurt. So how is it possible that in our current day and in our current time, we're so ill-equipped to have a conversation about guilt and innocence, right and wrong, and to love one another in the middle of it? I think it's because we hold on often to other things before we hold on to our theology, before we hold on to our love of Jesus. The rest of the world can't see how to disagree in love with one another because we haven't shown them well, because we haven't lived that out. Now, if you haven't heard of cancel culture, (laughs) if you haven't heard of what it means to cancel someone or cancel something, it's like a modern-day form of shunning, right? Anyone ever been shunned? Don't volunteer, you know? But if you've ever been shunned or you know what shunning is, cancel culture is like a way that you shun, but it's in kind of a more modern parlance, right? If someone does something that offends you or offends your tribe, you can determine that that person has no hope of ever being changed, okay? You LaCroix drinkers cannot be helped, right? I cancel your taste in food or drink, right? I don't believe it anymore, right? In the same way, this is what you do. You, you treat them as if they're good as dead. They're canceled, they're unimportant. The, the painful thing is the murdered person, right, uh, the, the canceled person has to walk around knowing that they're canceled by people. It's the most common form of homicide among young, alive people. They are canceling each other, right? And in this case, uh, what happens is, is kind of you push someone away, you tell them that they're unimportant, you tell them that they're a non-person, and then what happens to them? Now, this isn't new. It's been around since before the first Pharisee asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, this is, this is not new. People have always tried to categorize others as deserving or undeserving of our time and energy and love. But it's mainstream now because there's so many ways to block yourself off from people. Think about it, right? You can cancel them publicly. Before you could just cancel someone, you could banish them in your mind. I don't like this person. And you might tell the people that you know, I don't like that person, and they might tell the people they know. But now you can do this like officially through social media proclamation. You can unfriend a person. You can mute them, which is an interesting one. You can snooze them. You can ignore them. These are all ways in which we've learned how to cancel people. There are way way more ways to tell people that they're canceled than to tell people that you love them in our day and age. And the church has kind of mimicked this, right? We have so many choices about places to go. And one of the things that we think as we enter into churches, and even you know, as a pastor, I think this too. I want all of you to see things exactly the way that I do. And, and really, there's no limit to the opinions that I think you should have about things, okay? And it's like everything, right? And so I'm, I'm constantly, you know, I, I have to battle because I'm a little bit arrogant. I have to battle with my opinions of what you believe and what you love and what you care about, right? But there's this other thing too. There's like a sense in which if I go to a church, it can't disagree with any of my tribal markers, any of the things that I care about beyond the theology, beyond Christianity. It has to agree with everything that I agree with. But the church has to like fight together. This is the point. We're supposed to argue and we're supposed to illustrate what it is to love each other even as we argue. I want to ask you this. When's the last time your mind was changed about something? When is the last time you changed your mind? Maybe I'm just 
projecting because I never changed my mind, but maybe you've never changed your mind either, or you can't remember the last time you changed your mind about something. Here's the problem. The Bible describes the life of a Christian as a life of repentance. And the word repentance literally means to change your mind about something. So if we live in a world where our opinions never change, just our living situation and our church situation and our group of friends, because we're never going to change our minds about things, and we're never going to be teachable. How do we get to be Christians without ever having a change of heart, without ever having a change of mind? Jesus' coming into the world humbles us. No one gets canceled when the Son of God dies to save sinners. We're not allowed to write each other off. We're not allowed to write people off. Christians don't have that right. So what do we do? The only option left is to fight. To fight, to love one another. To be with one another, to believe one another, to hope for one another. Fight by faithfully enduring. This is the the Bible's best picture of what endurance looks like in this particular chapter. Think about Bathsheba. Think about her life for a moment. It's really hard for people, for modern readers, to take this account at face value. They want to do all kinds of things with the story of Bathsheba. You want to imply things about Bathsheba that aren't in the narrative, right? For instance, there's no indication that Bathsheba sought to entrap David using her feminine wiles. Now, if you've learned that, that's pure projection. It's not in the Bible, okay? There's no proof that this happened. There's no indication that she sought to entrap David. Ceremonial bathing took place in privacy. There's no reason to contend that Bathsheba was guilty of anything more than taking a private bath under the leering eyes of King David. And she came to her king when she was summoned. Of course she did. There's no indication that she knew what she was coming there for once she was in the palace. The king takes advantage of his position. Nathan, when he confronts David, he doesn't deal with her as one who is guilty, right? He talks about her as if she's the little lamb stolen away. She's not the focus of the narrative. There's no word of condemnation for Bathsheba to be found. Even when talking about the death of their just-born child, it is David's child, not Bathsheba's child. Bathsheba loses her husband and her infant child, and she mourns. She's a widow. She has no real alternative but to live in David's house. Think about that. Living in David's house among his wives. She has to live in that injustice. So I'm going to choose to play this as it lies. This is real injustice. There's clear guilt and innocence here. It's hard for us to see it because David is beloved. How could this be the same guy who slings a rock at Goliath, right? What about us? How could we be the same woman, the same man who's capable of deep fidelity to God and also deep betrayal? We have to see that. If we can't see the complexity of David's life, then we're going to miss the complexity in our own life too. If we can't see that it's possible to be a hero and not a hero, that close together, that drastically, that we're going to miss it in our own lives. Our pledges of allegiance, they're untrustworthy. Remember as a kid, 
You'd make a promise, you had to cross your fingers. And then they'd say, don't cross your fingers, and then you'd cross your toes. I'm not crossing my toes, I'm crossing my legs. This is us. God knows we won't cross our hearts and hope to die, right? He knows we won't do that. So he does it for us. If we rehearse the wrongs done to us, if that's you, if you've experienced that, you've experienced deep sin against you, or you've experienced the deep sin you've inflicted on someone else, and it is a serious barrier to you engaging in the truth of the gospel because good people don't do those things and good, people's don't, good people don't have those things happen to them. If that's you, I want you to look at Bathsheba as a model of endurance. She nurtures a son, Solomon, out of her deep loss. She continues to live. Some of you, I'm sure, can identify with that. Having to live and walk with that limp, having to live and walk with that struggle. I don't know if Bathsheba continued in any kind of faith. I don't, I don't have much of a clue except that Solomon is faithful. I don't know if she continued in that. But what I do know, ultimately, is that her example of persevering in injustice, her example of continuing to get off the mat, continuing to claim for her son the right of a king, her willingness to continue doing that, sometimes that's what it looks like for you to fight injustice, to get up off the mat every day to continue in what God's called you to do in the middle of your struggle and difficulty. That's part of the reason why this is here in the genealogy. This is part of what we're called to. The life of endurance is blessed. You may feel like the life of endurance is a curse, but your God has not forgotten about you. The life of endurance is blessed. Let me show you from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, 3 through 6, one of the highest pieces of praise you can see for a person. The wisest kind of person, here's how they live. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Steadfast love and faithfulness always happens amidst struggle and pain and suffering. You want to fight evil, this is where it starts. Just getting off the mat. You show up to worship. You grieve, you believe. It's normal stuff. There's no way to escape that at least some of this stuff is going to happen. There's no way to escape that at least to some degree this is going to be a part of your life. That Bathsheba is in this story and David is in this story because you are going to be both the guilty and the innocent and you're not allowed to cancel yourself out or to cancel other people. Don't be afraid to cast your anger when you're mad at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why it's there. Don't be afraid to cast your hurt and your pain and your exploitation there, the things you've encountered. Persist. It's godly fruit. Patience, long-suffering is godly fruit. The incarnation happened because only flesh can bleed for you. Jesus is born not because babies are cute, but because children born in the flesh who, be, who grow up to become adults, who grow up to become God in the flesh, they bleed. And you needed someone to bleed for you. And I needed someone to bleed for me. Bathsheba cries out for justice. 
Even at, uh, at the end of David's life, you'll read as you move on in 2 Samuel, you'll see the end of David's life, Bathsheba intercedes for her son. Even at the end, she has to fight for every scrap she can get because her son is supposed to be the rightful king, but others are taking the throne. She goes out there and she fights for her child. You've got to ask yourself some questions. Do my bones break over my sin and the sin of others? Do I repent like David? Do I feel that heaviness? And I don't want you to stay in that heaviness. I don't want you to walk away in that heaviness. I don't want you to grovel. We turn toward the Lord with it. Do we see what Jesus is doing here? Thou art the man, so am I. Jesus' incarnation is the only real answer to evil in our world. It's a perfect end here, okay? Perfect place to end. What do we do with sin? We deny it, we minimize it, we cancel it. What does Jesus do with sin? He enters into it. Among sinful people, into sin he goes. He is not amazed or ashamed or afraid of your and my sin. He gives us this pattern of cultural engagement. Go to where people are suffering. Guilt is heavy. That original five studies, the NIH-funded study, it'll tell you, everybody will tell you at the end of it, you know what they'll say to do with your guilt? Because this is funny. Like they say, hey, guilt is bad and it's heavy. Do you know what they say to do with guilt? Just get rid of it. Deal with it. However you can, have a positive attitude and move that guilt away. Do you know what my problem with that is? My guilt doesn't listen when I tell it to do that. Does your guilt listen? Is your guilt a good listener that says, you're right, you shouldn't feel guilty, I'm out. It doesn't work that way. Guilt sticks. It works its way into our heart. It, it, it finds a place, it puts in a root. The best science of our day, the best psychology of our day tells us to recategorize our, our guilt and rename it. Call that something nicer, right? Or, or, hey, go buy a book, you know? Girl, wash your face or... Girl, stop apologizing, or girl, don't worry, other people are worse than you, you know, whatever it is. You know, God gives us a gift every week to worship and confess our sin and be forgiven. Do you recognize how much your God loves you, that he calls you in here and he says, you need someone to die for you, and every single week, God gives his own body for your and my nourishment. He pours himself out again. That's how much he loves you. So that when you leave worship, you're not decorated for your righteousness, we leave saying, I've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. My guilt has been dealt with in Christ. My innocence is from Jesus. David becomes the king. David continues in his kingdom. He looks forward to a better king in Christ. Bathsheba becomes the mother of justice because her line, her child Solomon, he brings Jesus eventually. You and I on this side of Advent, you and I, what are we going to do? What will we become when Jesus takes away, when Jesus tells us the truth of the gospel and he takes away every reason for us to be silent about evil? What will we be? Where will we go, you and I? What will we do? Well, let's pray.